Not only have we been told a false history of our past, leaving out millennia, really millennia of human history, but also that we haven't been able to answer some very specific questions that I had as a child. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Mother Unearthed, where we explore the lost history of the feminine. On today's episode, we have the powerhouse, Rianne Eisler. Rianne is internationally known for her groundbreaking contributions as a systems scientist, futurist, and cultural historian. She's the author of many books, including the very popular Chalice and the Blade, now in its 57th U.S. printing and 27 foreign editions. Also, The Real Wealth of Nations, which was hailed by Nobel Peace Prize laureate Desmond Tutu as a template for the better world we have been so urgently seeking. She's also the recipient of the Distinguished Peace Leadership Award, which has been given to the Dalai Lama. There's so much to learn here. We can't wait for you to listen. As you know, one of the things we love to explore on the podcast is really diving into a lot of the lost history of the feminine, because there's just so much fascinating research that's surfaced. And I know you've spent a lot of your career writing, thinking, speaking on this topic. So we were curious if you could share some of the most intriguing aspects of the lost history of the feminine that that you've come across that you think many people may not be aware of. And let's just start our conversation there. The most intriguing aspect was that we have a lost history. Yeah. Right there. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. As I was doing this research, I kept thinking, this is so different from what I've been taught from what we've all been taught, from what we're still being taught, unfortunately. It also answered some of the questions of my own childhood. When I was a child, I really wanted to know, you know, in the Bible, it says, henceforth, woman will be subservient to man. And I I always wanted to know, well, what was it like before the henceforth? Mm -hmm. And of course, nobody wanted to talk about that. The chalice and the blade... Uh, which is the book that draws really from the, it's the first attempt that I made to really bring out our history instead of just history with a big H-I-S. So when I wrote The Chalice and the Blade, there were these moments of being able to answer this question of just what was it like? It was more peaceful, it was certainly more gender balanced. It was more generally egalitarian. I also wanted to know why would a woman ask advice from a snake? I mean, we usually don't do that, do we? But if you really do the research, you realize that the snake in the days before the shift from a more partnership systems orientation to a domination orientation, it was a a symbol not only of the renewal of life, because, you know, it periodically sheds 
and renews its skin, but it was also a symbol of oracular prophecy. And in fact, that lasted well into historic times. Think of the Oracle of Delphi. I mean, who did the statesmen, and by then it was only men, go to for advice? To a priestess, she was called a Pythoness because she worked with a snake to put herself into an oracular trance. And if you look at the Minoan so-called goddess or priestess figurines, they have snakes coiled around their arms and they are in an oracular trance. So I started to understand is that not only have we been told a false history of our past, leaving out millennia, really millennia of human history, but also that we haven't been able to answer some very specific questions that I had as a child, because children want to know, and I certainly did. And The Chalice and the Blade is the first book, really, uh, reporting this research. It's now in its 57th U.S. printing and in about 30 foreign editions. It's an evergreen. And if you get it, do get one after the 56th printing. Get a new one. It's not that expensive. Uh, because I wrote an epilogue bringing it up to the Trump years, to that edition. And it is still as relevant, if not more so, than ever before. You already mentioned it once, but can you tell us more about your idea behind what is a partnership system versus a domination system? How do those systems relate to the title of your book, The Chalice and the Blade? Because the chalice and the blade are really two symbols of power, aren't they? And the blade is certainly a very much of a symbol for a domination system. It is the power to control, to dominate, to take life. There is another kind of power, which is the power of the chalice, the creative power that we humans have so much of. It is the power to give life, to nurture life, to illuminate life. But if you really look at what we've inherited are not only false stories about our past, about human nature, about just about all kinds of things that are really vital, but we have also inherited classifications. Uh, you know, linguistic psychologists tell us that the classifications, the categories provided by a culture's language really channel our thinking. If we don't have a category for something, we can't express. I mean, I get this all the time from people who have read my books saying, oh my gosh, I, I felt that some of this, but I didn't have the words. So I had to coin words, uh, categories that go beyond right, left, religious, secular, Eastern, Western, capitalist, socialist, Northern, Southern, because if you really, really think about it, there have been repressive, regressive, violent uh, cultures in every one of these categories. So none of us tell us what we have to build. 
in order to have a more equitable, caring, sustainable future. Moreover, if you really look at them with a more open mind, which is happening more and more, thank goodness, as we are trying to shift back to the configuration, not to any good old days, but quote unquote, but to the configuration of the partnership system, uh, what we see is that uh, these categories, think about it, they either marginalize or they just completely ignore nothing less than the majority of humanity, women and children. So I had to coin new words for new configurations that kept repeating themselves, both cross-culturally and trans-historically. And I called one the domination system and the other one the partnership system, or rather, because it's always a matter of degree, the partnership domination social scale. And depending on which side a culture orients to, it has a very different configuration, which I'll be happy to tell you about, but I want to pause for a moment. There's so much we just don't know, right? I love your example of the henceforth in the Bible, right? And I think that just highlights how critical and important it is for us to have questions and question things and try to seek out this knowledge, even as you've done in your career, when we don't have the language for something that we're seeing, let's create it so that we can talk about it. And I know the partnership and dominator societies are something that you've really spent a a lot of time on. So I'd love to dive a little deeper there to even just clarify for our audience, like what ingredients contribute to a dominator society? Like what makes a society a dominator society? What do you think is the underlying force of a dominator society? And, you know, I'm assuming you would say that that most of the world that we live in today is under this dominator structure? Well, it's a, it's a, a matter of degree. And the real struggle for our future is not between right and left. I mean, there have been terrible regimes, domination regime in both or East and West or North and South or capitalist and socialist, but between these two configurations. So I really want to emphasize that because as long as we are stuck in these, this very fragmented and fragmenting kind of thinking, we miss the big picture. We miss women, we miss children. We don't understand why, for example, caring and caregiving, which in domination systems are coded feminine, are not valued or properly rewarded. And certainly, we don't understand why we have all of these strange stories, uh, like the story from, you know, from the fall. I mean, it only makes sense in terms of the shift. When you say the fall, are you referring to the story of Adam and Eve? Yes, if the story of Adam and Eve, precisely. Uh, Why we have this story, which part of it reflects the old reality. Woman asking advice from a snake makes perfect sense. You know, it's a symbol of oracular prophecy. But the rest of the story, that we may not even think anything except what we're told by a presumably male, punitive, 
angry deity, you know, God-fearing is a very appropriate word for how it has been conceptualized and still is for unfortunately for many people. That part is the new reality. So it's only if we have this new frame of the partnership domination social scale that we can understand so many of these stories that we've been told. Can you speak to, rewinding just a little bit to the lost history of the feminine, can you speak to some of these ancient forager communities that in contrast were, as I understand it, Mother Earth worshipping or Great Mother worshipping communities? And what were some of the characteristics or the ingredients, if you will, that contributed to these partnership societies that we don't know much about? Well, certainly how they conceptualized the uh, power that governs the universe has a lot of symbolic significance. But let me just quickly give you a contrasting configuration of the two configurations. If you look at the domination configuration, you see that there is a top-down authoritarian uh, punitive structure in both. And this is what is so different about this. It takes into account family, childhood, which really, if you look right, left, religious, secular, family is nowhere to be found, right? Except by those who are really pushing us back. We'll get to that. So the first part of the configuration, as you move to the partnership side, you have a more egalitarian, more democratic structure in both the family and in economics and in politics and in religion and in education, etc., etc. Secondly, and this is absent, just absent uh, from our conventional analysis or from our conventional categories, you see that in domination systems, you have this ranking of male, you know, there are two forms, two basic forms in humanity, the female form and the male form. And if you rank the male form over the female form, you have a template, don't you, for equating difference with either superiority or inferiority, dominating or being dominated, being served or serving. And that applies then to race, to religion, to any other in-group versus out-group thinking. As you move to the partnership side, you value difference. So this is a very important partnership trend that we are talking about valuing difference, starting, I would say, with gender, because it's not coincidental that the people who are stuck in very rigid domination stereotypes, and, and that's the only way you can really rank one type of human over another is to have rigid stereotypes and you have, have rigid gender stereotypes, uh, you also have in-group versus out-group thinking. You have racist, you have anti-Semitism, you know, you have all of the ugly-isms. The fourth part of the configuration is that domination systems have a built-in violence and abuse. You have some violence and abuse in partnership systems, but it, it doesn't have to be there to maintain these rigid rankings of man over man, man over woman, race over race, religion over religion, humans over nature. I mean, and the fourth is the stories are different. 
and the language is different. And you're so right. We have to coin new language. And I did. I mean, not only the partnership and the dominator or domination system, but hierarchies differentiate between hierarchies of domination, which we all know there are very bad consequences if you don't obey orders for you, or a hierarchy of actualization. And again, there's a trend in that direction. The term empower didn't exist, right? It's it, But it only makes sense if you use power to empower rather than to disempower. That's fascinating, Rianne. And in what you're saying with partnership societies where there isn't that kind of gender hierarchy or dominance hierarchy, and there's a valued, the differences between, say, a man and woman are, are valued and celebrated. How does that actually occur in a partnership society? Like, what does that look like to actually celebrate the differences? Well, we're beginning to see, number one, the rejection, the questioning of rigid gender stereotypes. I mean, the, it's not only the gender fluidity that we're seeing, but we see men saying, wait a minute, being a real man doesn't mean that I'm not like a woman, you know, which is the traditional definition. I too am capable of empathy, of caring, of caregiving, uh, etc. We see it in women saying, well, being born a woman doesn't mean I can't be a leader. So at least in some world regions, not in all, we're seeing this mix, right? of the partnership movement, but we also have a tremendous heritage from these five to 10,000 years. And that's all it's been, by the way, which is a drop in the evolutionary bucket. You know, warfare is, archaeology shows, is only about 10,000 years old, uh, five to 10,000 years old. And yes, the domination system is a in the mainstream, a relatively new, very new development. So what we really are doing, part of it is a reclamation project, part of it is a creation project. I want to engage people in this because as long as we're stuck in this, for example, this ridiculous argument between capitalism and socialism, uh, we don't realize that both perpetuate the domination system's devaluation of anything like caring, caregiving, nonviolence that is coded feminine in domination systems. And we can talk more about that. And I think that's such a profound point too you bring up on we get so stuck in all of these dichotomous scales and systems. And I think it, it limits so much thinking and so much imagination of where we really could be evolving and going to. Because you're absolutely right. Like in a lot of cases, both ends of these spectrums are not necessarily the optimal or most harmonious future. Well, I mean, if you look at capitalism and socialism, there have been terrible regressive, repressive regimes in both categories. I mean, Stalin's Former Soviet Union is a prime example. Hitler's Nazi Germany, you know, from the same era. These categories, these old categories, are distractions. And they fragment our consciousness and they 
really distract us from the real struggle for our future, which is between those wanting to push us back quite consciously to more rigid domination times, which they're taught are just the way things are and uh, divinely ordained, etc., etc., or those of us who are trying to build what we must build at this time of climate change, of a global economy, uh, of, of communication and transportation technologies that really interconnect us in ways that were unheard of before. Uh, and we must, well, you know, Einstein said it. He said, you cannot solve problems with the same thinking that created them. And I think that's also a great segue into the next topic we wanted to talk to you about, which is artificial intelligence, a huge technology and one of the most powerful technologies we've seen come come online in a while. And artificial intelligence has just hit a critical moment where the pace of innovation and acceleration of a lot of these models is just mind-blowing. There are new developments happening every couple of days. There are new companies coming up, you know, dozens a day. What would you say to the technology leaders who are in charge of working on this technology, developing this technology? Well, I would say, first of all, something that they know, which it isn't the technology per se. It is how it is programmed, how it is used. And that really depends on what end of the partnership domination scale you orient to. So we at the Center for Partnership Systems have developed and we're in the progress of now reworking it. with a, We got a grant from the Ford Foundation to develop a partnership technology toolkit to deal with some basic fundamental questions that we have to ask ourselves whether we consciously or unconsciously orient our thinking still to the domination side and think that that, for example, ideas of human nature, you know, whether it's original sin or selfish genes, which are the stories that are most prevalent. It's the same story. I mean, they fight each other, but really it's the same story, isn't it? Human nature is flawed. We are basically aggressive, huge emphasis on really brutal selfishness. Therefore, we have to be rigidly controlled from the top, whether it's by a punitive deity or a punitive head of family or a punitive head of state. And that, if you really look at what is happening in our world today, whether it's Putin in Russia, whether it's uh, North Korea, whether it's Iran, whether it's the Taliban, I mean, religious, secular, Eastern, Western, Northern, Southern, what you see doesn't make any sense if you're stuck in the old categories, but it makes a lot of sense if you use the partnership domination social scale. Consider, for example, that in the West, the so-called rightist fundamentalist, and I say so-called rightist fundamentalist alliance, because it's, it's really a domination alliance. What are the social issues that they're focusing on in the United States? It's four cornerstones that have been identified by research. One is 
childhood and family. You know, I mean, think about it, parental control, the battle going on, what you can teach children is a big battle going on. We're not going to let kids explore. No, that's wrong. We're going to control everything. That's the first agenda. Think about it. They want to push us back to the rigid gender stereotypes and the ranking, therefore, of masculine and male over so-called feminine and, well, I mean, so-called masculine too, over so-called feminine and women. Economics, they want a top-down domination economics, like trickle-down economics. And, And they want the old stories that justify and even deify domination as the only possibility. Either dominate it or you dominate. And and Trump, Trump said it. He said it's all about domination. I mean, the clues are so clear. And yet we who are trying to change things are all over the map. And we don't pay enough attention to these four cornerstones of childhood and family, despite the neuroscience showing. I mean, in my my latest book, Nurturing Our Humanity, which came out with Oxford University Press in 2019, it, it relies heavily on how neuroscience supports this analysis that I'm giving to you of where we've been, where we are and where we can mm-hmm. be. And that's those are some interesting examples. I've I've also seen and read um, that you know dominator societies such as what you're highlighting, there can be a lot of resistance to changing those structures. Oh, denial. Lots of denial, lots of resistance to change. It can be very hard for people to to move past them. And so, you know, as you're saying, there's, or just how, how do you think that a society can, can get over that and actually welcome change and welcome new ideas? Well, part of it is cognitive dissonance. Uh, At a certain point, even the people who uh, have been taught denial in their families as a survival method, okay? I mean, they came, you know, they came from mostly punitive families emotionally or physically, certainly, you know, like spare the rod and spoil the child is still being taught in some of these so-called Christian, I mean, parenting guides. It's, it's, it's you, you, you have to really read and look at the people who are trying to push us back to understand how they are rooted in the domination configuration. And it isn't a question of religious or secular, Eastern or Western, a capitalist or socialist. It's these two configurations. So I think that uh, we need to pay attention to what neuroscience tells us, that it's not coincidental that you have climate change denial, that you have election result denial, that you uh, have uh, all of these seemingly bizarre stories that these people 
believe in, you know, conspiracy stories. There's an enemy out there. It's the in-group versus out-group, isn't it? Thinking and acting that is characteristic of domination systems. Uh, Once we understand that, uh, even the people who are in denial of climate change are beginning to have to recognize that it's happening, right? (laughs) I mean, because it's happening to them. So, are there, but but I would say that my work, I really want to reach first and foremost those of us who want a better future for ourselves mm-hmm. and for our children and for generations to come. Because as long as we remain in the old paradigm, the old categories, the old stories, we aren't effective. And as long as we don't pay enough attention to shifting families, childhood, gender, and recognize that family and childhood and gender are not just women's issues or just children's or just family issues, but they are key social and economic issues. Connect the dots, for goodness sakes. Rianne, one of the thoughts we keep coming back to is the idea of raising children and how important that is. And I've heard you use a really interesting analogy that ties back to artificial intelligence. And that that is that raising AI could be like could be like raising a child. And we know that a person's early childhood affects the adults that they become. So I'm curious what you would say to how do we consciously steer artificial intelligence towards partnership thinking and away from domination thinking? The partnership Technology Toolkit addresses that very, very question. And I think that the first step is really recognizing how we carry a lot of these old assumptions. Remember, I gave the example of selfish genes or original sin, and we think that they're so different. But if we subscribe to the selfish genes theory, we're still subscribing to the original sin theory. There's something wrong. We have to be controlled from the top. Uh, The technology toolkit uh, is right now, as we speak, we are shortening it so that there's an introductory part and then the four cornerstones of childhood, gender, economics, and story and language. And we start with story and language because that's really the entry point, isn't it? That we can all understand. And it's very painful for some of us to really recognize how... uh, domination thinking has affected us, our parenting, uh, everything. But it's okay if we learn from our mistakes and if we become conscious that we do have a partnership alternative. This is not just about disruption. It's not just about deconstruction. It's about reconstruction. And that is a very big difference between this analysis and other critiques, if you will, of what is. 
another very important topic that's also related to our future, which is economic metrics. And our first question for you was just, why are economic metrics important? Well, metrics, of course, are a way of valuing, isn't it? What's included, mm. we value what we measure and we measure what we value. But let me backtrack a little to this uh, argument that is such a distraction between capitalism and socialism. Both capitalism and socialism came out of early, very early industrial times, the 1700s, the 1800s. We're now in the 21st century post-industrial era. We're really only a small percentage of the population does manufacturing, just as in the shift from the agrarian to the industrial era, only a small percentage of people now do farming. I mean, it doesn't mean we don't have industry. So what uh, we really have to deal with is that for both Marx and for Smith, and they both challenge some traditions of domination, Okay, I mean, let's give them that. But they both perpetuated what I call the domination's hidden system of gendered values. And this is the ranking of anything stereotypically associated with masculinity, like domination, like violence, uh, over anything stereotypically associated with the feminine whether it's in a woman or a man, you know, I mean, women call men who are more, quote, feminine, sissies, right? I mean, this has nothing to do with one type of person against another person. It has an awful lot to do with maintaining the domination system. If you rank the masculine over the feminine, you have what you get, which is that there's always money, funding, for prisons. Well, who's that? That's the punitive male head of household, isn't it? There's always money for weapons for wars. Again, you know, the hero as killer. But somehow there isn't enough money for feeding children, for clothing children, for paid parental leave, for adequately rewarding the work that keeps economies going which is caregiving. Why? Because for both Marx and Smith, the work of caring for people was to be done for free by a woman in a male-controlled household, period. And as for caring for our natural life support systems, for both Smith and Marx, nature is just there to be exploited, period. There isn't a word about caring for our natural life support systems. In fact, the old economic model leaves out the three life-sustaining sectors, the natural economy, the volunteer community economy, and the household economy. And that is perpetuated by the metrics that we use, like GDP and GNP. Mm -hmm. Yeah, GDP was something we wanted to ask you about, Rian, because we use that globally, gross domestic product, to, as a measure of goods and services sold in a particular uh, country and, you know, how developed or well-off that particular country is. But it's very flawed, as you're highlighting currently. 
Well, it's terribly flawed. I mean, it includes activities that hurt and even take life. For example, it includes fast foods, it includes uh, cigarettes, and then it includes the medical <laughs> costs and the funeral costs. They're all great for GDP. As for nature, the only time that a tree, you know, we depend on trees for really for, for, for breathing, is in GDP is when it's dead, when it's a log. I mean, it's a crazy way of measuring. So we at the Center for Partnership Systems are developing, well, we launched in 2014, what we called social wealth economic indicators. And you can find out about them at centerforpartnership.org. But we're now, because there are 52 of them, both inputs and outputs, and it is based, this new way of looking. Economies highlights, shows what neither GDP nor GNP, and frankly, what neither most so-called GDP alternatives don't show, which is the economic value of caring for people starting at birth and caring for our natural life support systems. So it, it has both inputs and outputs not just a snapshot of what is, but what kind of investments in what uh, really make for a better outcome. How would we go about measuring such elements, care for our natural world and the care that we're putting towards future generations? Well, uh, you would look at both the input and the output. How much money is invested in alternative energy versus how much money is invested in the old fossil fuels, right? Uh, As for caring for people, you look at factors such as the accessibility and the quality, the quality of community early childhood work, which is part of GDP, but it is so low in its valuation. You know, it's funny. We insist that plumbers be trained, right? But we don't insist that childcare workers be trained, which is insane. I mean, what is more valuable, our children or our pipes, right? But we have inherited this bizarre system. So we have a lot of add-ons now. I spoke to the United Nations General Assembly on a session that was sponsored by the state of Bolivia on harmony with nature. And I made the point, you cannot just add on harmony with nature to a fundamentally imbalanced system. You have to look at what is valued in the system and what is devalued. And we're right back to this gendered system of valuations. And if we don't really excavate that, if we don't make it conscious, we don't see what's actually happening, do we? Could we ask you to speak a little bit about how the status of women and children and our long-term economic success are linked? Because it seems as though people who are invested in the long-term economic health of our country would have a wider view of what that means. So curious to hear your take on why those things are linked together. Well, unfortunately, it is not being taken into account, the gender and the childhood factor. There is 
been progress in taking into account our natural life support systems. But again, if you don't really look at the whole system, this is a whole systems approach. I want to give you an example, and then I'll go back to your question. In 2018, Putin, who, you know, barbaric invasion of of Ukraine, a tyrant, right, you know, complete control over communications, etc. He substantially agreed to and pushed the fact that today in Russia, the penalty for family violence is less than for general violence. So if you harm or kill a child or a woman or a man in a family in Russia today, you get a much lighter penalty than if you harm or kill a stranger. Why? Because he and the Taliban and Khomeini's Iran, Hitler's Nazi Germany, Stalin's former Soviet Union, they get it that there is a connection between a punitive, rigidly male-dominated authoritarian family and a rigidly male-dominated, punitive, violent, authoritarian state. We have to make these connections. We have to really connect the dots. And what was your question again? I'm sorry. I got no, you're, you're answering it. It was just, what's the link between the long-term economic health of a country and the status of women and children? It's very clear, especially in our post-industrial knowledge service era, when even economists who live in some alternate reality, because they're still taught that caring for people and caring for nature is just reproductive rather than productive. Remember GDP, you know, and reproductive isn't counted, just quote productive, whatever we say is productive, even if it kills us. What we really have is a system that devalues caring for children in an era when even economists tell us that the most important capital for this new economic era is what they like to call high quality human capital. Well, I, I prefer to call it capacity development, but Whatever we call it, uh, if we objectify people or not, what we're talking about is the very largely hinges, whether we do or don't have this high-quality human capital or this capacity development, on the care and education children receive. We know from neuroscience that actually the first five years are critical. And yet, even the Democrats, see, this is the problem, compromise with the Republicans on a bill that would really institute paid family leave, that would really ensure that there is more accessible and better quality child care. Uh, now, to his credit, Biden uh, has now made it part of a, an executive order, but it's going to be challenged because it's fundamental if we don't elevate caring as something that is valued. And frankly, if we don't get rid of these rigid ideas of what is masculine and what is feminine, because yes, there are differences between men and women, but masculinity and femininity as conventionally defined are not necessarily at all related 
to anything inherent in women and men. Okay, and and let's just start with that. That yes, we want to value difference, but the these rigid gender stereotypes are there to make it easy and possible to rank one over the other, isn't it? You referenced social wealth indicators that you've come up with at your um, center earlier. One of the things Lindsay and I were wondering about is if it's possible to take social wealth indicators and apply them to your own individual family, because there's so much emphasis on financial wealth, success in a family, but wouldn't it be interesting to look as parents, look at social wealth indicators in your own family as opposed to just financial wealth? I'd love to have you do that because I tell you, I think it can be used in every kind of a, an institution. Family is an institution, an organization, a country, a globe. It applies to all levels. It is a question of what is valued. And now the problem that we face is that the current reward system which is monetized, doesn't reward that work. I have had so many arguments with conventional economists, but finally, when I say to them, it's okay for you to say that this work should be done for free. You know, that's what they've been taught, right? Tell it to somebody who needs a roof over their heads and food on the table. Right. And in a monetized world, yes, we want it monetized, if only as a transitional measure. And that's where I'm at right now. And how that's to be done, there are many creative ideas. But I think starting in the family is also a very, very good approach. So brava. Interesting. Well, maybe that'll be our next job, Lindsay, after this podcast. No, I mean, it's a good call to action for people to think critically within their own family unit and and how do they want to value things in the home and how does that extend? Things have their all their own ripple effects, right? As you've highlighted, Rianne, like, you know, in those first five years, families making their own choices, making their own ways of, of operating as that spreads and maybe eventually gets a critical mass beyond any sort of political system that seems to want to have oversight over it, you know, we can see things maybe change. Well, as a matter of fact, one of the questions in the toolkit is whether your family or your workplace or your whatever really values and rewards the work of caring for people outside of GDP, you know, the so-called reproductive work. And I tell you, it hurts to be able to have to tell you that the this spurious distinction between reproductive and productive work is still taught in our economic schools and our business schools to this day. Can you lay out that distinction for us? We have to change that. Well, reproductive work is the work that is left out of GDP because it is not goods or services changing hands in the market, right? Okay. So productive work is like you're coming to work, you're doing your job, what's traditionally thought of as being productive. And then the reproductive work is more like the household caring work. It really leaves out the three life-sustaining sectors. When I wrote The Real Wealth of Nations, which is the book that introduces the urgent need for a new economics, a caring economics of partnerism, that 
takes the partnership elements of both capitalism and socialism, but goes further to value and reward this reproductive work of caring for people and caring for our natural life support systems. Uh, that book is still so relevant today, and I urge you to read it because it calls for a caring revolution. And that's what I think what you are talking about. So if we model for children in our families that this work is really valued, they will value it. And they will say, why in the world is there this spurious distinction between reproductive and productive? Let's look at it from a different way. Is this work harming people or caring for people, both in the market and outside the market? I just want to thank you so much for being with us today and taking the time to share your wisdom with us. We feel so lucky to have the opportunity to speak with you. Well, it's been a pleasure to be with you. It's really very simple, the difference between two configurations. And it is paying attention to these four cornerstones of family and childhood, gender, and the gendered system of valuations, which takes us to the third four cornerstone, which is economics. And of course, the fourth cornerstone, which is really fundamental, is story and language. And you're so right. We have to make yeah. up new language. Rianne, is there anywhere else that our audience can find you other than your books that we've, we've already mentioned or things that you want to give our audience to follow up on? I really urge you to go to centerforpartnership.org where you'll find all kinds of resources, including the Caring and Connected Parenting Guide, which is based on the newest uh, neuroscience and is available for free in both English and Spanish. I also urge you to go to my website, Rianne Eisler, with no two E's in the middle, rianneisler.com, just to find out a little bit more about me. And the two are sort of complementary. And I thank you and really hope that you reach lots of people and that we can work together to shift from domination to partnership worldwide. Absolutely. Well, thank you so, so much for joining us today. What a fascinating conversation. Thank you for sharing all of your, your wisdom and work. I know I learned a lot of things. I'm sure many in our audience have as well. Just thank you so much. Thank you.